0: Welcome back to
1: the Former Podcast from the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. This podcast is about the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. It's the audio companion of the Former Journal. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and in this episode, I'm talking great books with Scott Hamburg of OnlineGreatBooks.com. How are you doing today, Scott?
0: I am good. Thanks for letting me come and talk to your people. Well,
1: I'm excited about this. Before we jump directly into the great books, I'd like to get a little bit about your background. I have a sneaking suspicion that your journey here and mine are pretty similar coming to the great books as adults and somewhat through our children. So tell our listeners a little bit about your introduction to the great books.
0: Oh, well, um, I've always been a pretty avid reader and attempted to read some of these supposed great books. You know, 14, 15, 16 years old, I picked up the Plato's Republic and Descartes and a few other things and, and struggled and really didn't do very well with those and read read a lot of the st- kind of stuff that you know you're supposed to read catch 22 uh, steinbeck stuff like that but the things that are sort of part of the canon always sort of eluded me and uh, years later decided we needed to homeschool the kids home educate actually not interested in school <laughs> school's a different kind of animal you know schools <laughs> fish hang out in schools we're more right. interested in education and uh, i realized that i i i lacked sort of that that trivium sort of classical liberal arts t- kind of education. I have a uh, science and technology background, microbiology, chemistry kind of stuff and didn't approach any of these sort of things. So I decided that I needed to figure that out. I needed to go remediate those problems, you know, and, and in researching all the things that I might possibly do, I found Mortimer Adler's great books program from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and decided that looked to me like about the easiest way for an adult you know, to, to get familiar with those, with those works, with those ideas, to approach the trivium, the grammar, logic, and rhetoric. I knew I wasn't going to go uh, undertake a study of Latin at age 40 or whatever. So I started a group here in my home, and we've been meeting now for about five years. One of, the, one of the people in the home group here is a Brett McKay of Art of Manliness. And he said, hey, listen, you, this is great. You need to do this online somehow. And he was doing this. Well, he's still doing what he calls the strenuous life. You know, he, he really believes in what they're doing there at the Art of Manliness where they I don't know, he could tell you what his mission was better than me, but uh, you know, he's trying to cultivate you know healthy masculine skills and thoughts and keep traditions alive. And he, he wanted people to actually take action on those things in the real world. So he created this thing called The Strenuous Life. And uh, he said, this is how we're doing it. And he outlined how they were doing things at The Strenuous Life. And I thought, yeah, we can adapt that sort of method to a study of the great books. And we put together onlineGreatbooks.com. So that people that can't get a group together of their own, it's kind of hard to find some eight friends (laughs) that might want to go read uh, Aristotle's metaphysics. So special kind of person might be tough to find a quorum to do that. So uh, we provide, we provide that for them. We provide accountability so they can uh, uh, manage the reading and uh, give them groups that they can, they can meet in with a skilled Socratic interlocutor you know somebody to lead the seminar and ask them the hard questions and keep them in the text, and uh, we've been doing that for now two years. I got five hundred and fifty or so people reading right now.
1: Wow, that's great. Yeah, I, I, the science and technology eluded me quite a bit, but uh, but we also kind of came through it from taking our kids out of school and homeschooling, and uh, that led us to classical education, and then. Reading and then the great books, and that's ultimately led me here to Cersei. So that's really so, exciting. So, what
0: was your education background then? If um, I like had
1: that? a history degree, but if you can believe it, I got a history degree without ever finding out who Herodotus was. So that kind of wow. kind of mm-hmm. gives you some uh, some background on that. So, yeah, some big gaps, big gaps in my history education. Always loved to read, but kind of got away from literature and then came back to it as an adult too. So, well, let's take a step back. Then what what are the great books for our listeners?
0: Well. <laughs> That for for some people that's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, we 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 kind of know what they are, right? They're Shakespeare, they're Plato, they're Aristotle, they're John Locke, they're Adam Smith. We kind of know these these heavy hitters names. Uh, but but the list, if there is a list, uh, I always tell people that I think it is an emergent list of books. If you pick up one of these great books you no, pick one like if you if you said boy there's something that I'm interested in i heard somebody talking about nietzsche the other day perhaps you know uh, his ubermensch i'm going to go read some nietzsche we go pick that pick that up you're going to find out that he refers to kant you're going to find out he refers to hegel he's going to refer to aristotle he's going to refer to plato and then you find out well gosh I got to go, to really know what the heck he's talking about. I got to go read one of these guys. So you go read them and they refer then, uh, uh, they refer to Hobbes and then Hobbes refers to Machiavelli and he refers to Aristotle's politics. And, and then, you, so you continue to see that these people are in conversation with each other and that their works are building on each other. And you can kind of trace a genealogy of Western thought back to essentially to Homer's Iliad. Um, I would say 80% of the books that you would see in like Mortimer Adler's great books of the Western world list, no honest fair-minded people would argue about, Okay, Uh, you know, who would say Shakespeare shouldn't be in there? Nobody, but a jerk. Right. right. (laughs) Uh, Who would say Aristotle shouldn't be in there and nobody that's being honest, Plato, Homer. So, you know, there's always a little bit of room for debate. You know, it's like, who's the greatest boxer of all time. <laughs> go around right. and around. There's always a little bit of debate, but the list is mostly, I think self evident because the books refer to the thinkers and the writers that came before them. So you, if you're just going to read one of them, you're going to find out if you're going to really truly understand it, you're going to have to read back in history and you have to read all of them. The list is there for you to find. Okay.
1: I, yeah. I like that idea of the, an emergent Canon. It's uh, it, Kind of
0: self-referential, so um, yeah, it's not a it's not a list of favorites. It's not a list of favorites. You know, there are some there are some big questions that bother people. What is justice? What is virtue? Can people be taught? Um, what's the best form of government? Uh, what is love? Uh, what is fate? Etc. There are these big questions and you know, we're always going to be bothered by these questions. I think unfortunately, and these books, these books uh, address those in the most beautiful, most, uh, most complete way so far. So they're not just like a greatest hits list or somebody's favorite. They are these books that address these big questions, these great ideas most completely and in the best possible way. And then these, each of these authors respond to the ones before them. The the canon, the Western canon. I'm making the air quotes for the people listening. It's it's not dogmatic. You know, you're going to find that Aristotle refutes almost everything that Plato said. Um, almost everyone would agree that Adam Smith, in his book The Wealth of Nations, that talks about capitalism, should be in there, and they almost always agree that Karl Marx's work should be in there as well. Well, Smith and Marx can't both be right. So the books in the canon, it's, it's not about which is right. It's about which addresses these questions most fully in the most interesting and most en- engaging way. Uh, it, it's not one thing. I think a lot of people think that it's like a monolithic dogmatic, uh, body of thought, but it's not. These people fight with each other for mm, 3000 years and we get to listen in to people a lot smarter than us disagree in a civil thoughtful way. It's, it's fascinating to me.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned when you were coming back to it, uh, uh, looking at Mortimer Adler's list. Um, and for those who don't know that that list became a, uh, ultimately compiled into a set, um, uh, that was, there was a couple other sets. There was a Harvard set, I think, and a few others. Uh, What, what was, what was Adler's purpose in developing that set?
0: Well, Adler, Adler thought that, Adler was kind of a, well, it, Adler was at the University of Chicago. His, his boss there was uh, Robert Hutchins, and, and he and Hutchins put together what they called the BASIC program, which is the worst marketing move ever, uh, to name your program the BASIC <laughs> program. It sounds like a remedial or something, you know. Uh, but they put together this adult education program called the BASIC program, where they had normal people who uh, read these books and come and discuss them in a Socratic seminar because they believed that the people who vote essentially govern each other. And if they're going to do that, they need to know, they need to know all the sides of these great ideas. You know, you, you read Plato's Republic, he kicks the he kicks off with what is justice. And if you're going to vote, you need to have thought about all aspects of justice in the most complete way as you possibly can to cast the best possible vote. Because we live in a, we live in a Republic supposedly that's what I was told in school. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're essentially governed by the other pe- the people around us and we, we want them to know what the heck it is they're doing. Uh, that's basically, that's basically the project and there's a little more new nuance to it than that, but it's a liberal arts education. You know, the, the, a liberal education, liberal, shares a root with the word liberty. It's, uh, it's the education that befits free people. And uh, they believe that to protect that freedom and to maintain it and to have the best possible form of government, everybody needs to know what the heck is going on. And uh, they believe that the best way to do that was to read these books.
1: So if you're going to democratize
0: this freedom to everyone you have to democratize the educating as well. That's right. If everybody if if everybody has a hand in government they need to be educated in governance. And that's a big big problem. Uh justice, virtue, economics, political theory, history, on and on and on, you know, if you're going to do it right, you got to know you got to know that stuff. Okay?
1: So that is kind of a, a macro argument for this. Um, what have you found as you've engaged in this over
0: the last several years to be some of the personal rewards from, from engaging with these texts? Well, my, my partner at the Online Great Books podcast, he always gets on to me and he tells me that I need to lead with it's fun. <laughs> uh, it, and it is fun. It is fun. Um, let me read these. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it and I really enjoy the seminar. Um, the seminar is the opposite of, uh, of small talk you know, talking about the weather. How about them cowboys? You know, who cares? Uh, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's real people talking in an honest way about important things. What is justice? We get to talk about that. And, uh, that's, uh, and when you get to talk about important things with people that are uh, speaking in an honest way, it's a delight. It's a delight. So I, I love that. But in reading all these books, I have, it, it has changed me a great deal it's made me less tolerant of small talk <laughs> uh, and, and, and it's, and it's changed my views on many, many subjects. When you read Socrates destroy somebody in the Agora in in one of these uh, platonic dialogues, if you're reading carefully and you're being introspective, it'll make you either know why you believe the thing you believe and shore up your belief or it'll make you change. So it's shored up a number of things that I believe and It's a, uh, And it's completely revamped a number of things that I thought I believed as well. Because, you know, I think that, you know, we go to school from K through 12, and then we go to university or whatever, we go to church, and parents talk to us. And when you hit 21 years old or something like that, we have a toolbox of ideas and beliefs that were really kind of handed to us. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh we haven't really had the time to tear those things apart we really haven't had the political or social standing to do it either you know you, it's probably not a real good idea to just completely uh rethink all the ideas you have when you're a 14 year old and you're trying to live at your your parents and not get killed uh so when we get when we reach that adulthood uh it's time to 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 know why we believe the things we believe and one of the best ways to do that is uh to follow socrates showing people how to do that. You know, they killed him for it really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's changed. It's, it's changed me a lot. Yeah.
1: So, so in discovering these ideas through the works, and you've talked about tracing these conversations back at times, um, g- give me an example of, 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 a, an idea you followed that thread through from th- across some, some thinkers,
0: some time like one, one of the great ideas, you know, polit- political systems, you know, what is the best political system? Um, in my home group recently, we read Thomas Hobbes, uh, Hobbes book, Leviathan, where he describes a pretty ugly state of nature and, uh, and, um, describes how he thinks it's best to counteract that and uh, how to govern people. Uh, we've also, we also read prior to that, we read quite a bit of Thomas Aquinas on government, uh, he's a monarchist. He's a monarchist. I probably am too now. Um, we've read Cicero. Cicero wrote a book, uh, The Republic, which is sort of his answer to Plato's Republic. But he doesn't really answer Plato's Republic head on. He really sort of describes the the Roman Republic at the time. So it tells you, you read Cicero's Republic. It tells you how Rome was governed at that time, which, which was interesting. Uh, Aristotle's Politics. Uh, I just reread that and led seminars on it not too long ago plato's republic of course and then there's all kinds of issues about governance leadership and so on in the in the greek plays in the antigone for example sophocles play antigone creon you know put, puts her to death essentially uh, for not obeying uh, what seems like an arbitrary law he had to maintain order inside the walls of their small city in, in a in a time of strife and war and uh You know, the the playwright pulls on your heartstrings and makes him out to be the bad guy. But um, uh, are the laws to be obeyed or not? Are they to be obeyed or not? Can you pick and choose? Antigone sort of chose and uh, ultimately paid. Socrates was put on trial for corrupting the youth of Athens. They convicted him. His friend Crito comes to him in the night and says, hey, man, I got friends with boats. I got money. You don't have to drink the hemlock. We can get you out of here right now. Socrates says, no, I can't do that. I've lived by the benefits of the city of Athens, and it would be wrong for me to not take the bad as well. I'm a citizen, and citizens have to take the good and the bad. If they're not willing to take the bad, anarchy is quick to follow. Actually, he doesn't say that piece, but I think that thing about anarchy being quick to follow is, uh, is right in there. And then, right now, I'm reading Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience he's disobeying the tax code because he didn't want to fund the the Mexican-American War. And it was Martin Luther King Day, not too long ago, and I read his letter from Birmingham Jail. And uh, Thoreau and King are in stark juxtaposition with Socrates. Socrates wasn't civilly disobedient. Well, maybe he was. Maybe he was. But but he felt like the laws needed to be obeyed. He was not uh, disobeying laws to make a social statement. And he peacefully, you know, took his death penalty there, whereas uh, Thoreau and um, Thoreau and Keene thought that they could undermine law by disobeying it strategically. Really interesting. I hadn't really thought about those two guys uh, contra Socrates before. But if you have everybody running, like if nobody knows what justice is. Or not enough people know what justice is. And then you have a whole bunch of people running around, picking and choosing and strategically disobeying the law to make bring about social change. You end up with chaos. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a Martin Luther King and you've got a Henry David Thoreau disobeying the law to bring about change, and those guys 100% dead nuts know exactly what justice is, you'll be okay. But what if all the protesters don't know? Right. What if they're throwing bricks saying they want social justice and you get one of them and say, what's justice, man? And they can't tell you? It's trouble. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Is that, don't even answer the question you asked. I I just started talking. (laughs) It's actually
1: interesting. You know, we've got a couple of um, Plato reading opportunities through Cersei right now. One's an online reading through all the dialogues in a year, just kind of as, you read them and you're there's a there's a Facebook group and that kind of stuff and there's another one that meets here locally at our office once a month and we just read Credo <laughs> this past Monday and so that actually ended up surfacing in the conversation is his actions somewhat more like a, a Martin Luther King who's willing to take the punishment he says you know he's not going not going to not teach and he's not going to leave and so in comparison to someone who might be say opposed to the Vietnam War and is willing to go to to go to jail for not, not obeying the draft compared to someone who might draft Audrey, who might flee the country. And I had never thought of him as more of a conscientious objector until it kind of got surfaced in that conversation. So it's interesting that you kind of follow that thread and there's uh, a lot going on there. And interesting that that thread goes across things like philosophical dialogues, kind of historical accounts of Rome's Republic, and then, and then works of fiction um, and then back again to, to history. So
0: yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the important, maybe the most important human theme, you know, how do, how do we, politics essentially the this science of, you know, getting along <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, everything else is in service of that really, you know, um, metaphysics, you know, what can we know? What do we, what, what can we know about stuff? What do we need to know about something to know what it is? Mm-hmm. Metaphysics epistemology. How do we know things like how do we form ideas? Ethics, you know, what does what we know call us to do? And then the politics of, we, you know, how, how do we do that together in a group? How do we get other people to do those same things? Right. How do we get them to live good lives? How do we get them to follow a highest good? And then I would add to that aesthetics. You know, how do we do these things beautifully? Oh yeah. So these, these big questions that are in these books, all are in the service of one of those kind of five things, I think.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about, engaging with the works we talked about you know there's a couple different lists out there but they're generally pretty close to the same um there's a couple different sets uh what are some of the different ways that these sets or lists go about approaching uh the, the works grouping them together
0: um uh, mortimer adler and uh and buchanan they went to the encyclopedia britannica company and they said we want every household in america to have these books you know because we think that if we're going to make America great, keep it great, we're going to be the city on the hill, all of that stuff, then our citizenry needs to have, the, have all these, they need to have these books on their shelves. They need to know these books. And they put together this 54-volume set of books. It starts with a, what they call the Centopicon, which is a kind of an index to the ideas throughout that set. kind of looks like an encyclopedia. And then it starts with Homer and it just goes in chronological order. But in the Syntopicon, no, in the, in the first volume, there's a 10-year reading plan in there. And they time, when you read that 10-year reading plan, you can Google it. It's out there. It's a pretty decent way to do this stuff, especially if you have the set. Uh, they kind of address the arc of ideas. So you might read about justice and you might read, like you might read some King Solomon in the old Testament, maybe you read a little bit of politics and an excerpt from politics. You might read some Locke, you might read some Hume, you might, you know, you'll just, you'll read 2000 years worth of stuff and then they'll move to the next topic. And so they, 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 they follow one idea through the arc of history. And that's one way to do it. Uh, But it requires you to have a whole bunch of books in front of you. (laughs) It requires you to have a whole bunch of books in front of you and it, and it leaves you hanging a little bit. Leave you hanging a little bit for example and, and then another way and the way we do it at online great books the way we've been at my home group now is we've read them in chronological order we started with homer and we read the iliad we read the odyssey then we read the plays of aeschylus we read the plays of euripides we read aristophanes we read sophocles then we read plato and so on and when we do that we have we read so by the time we get to aristotle We've read all the Greek plays we can get our hands on. There aren't a whole lot of them. We read all of them that we can get our hands on. We read Homer. We've read all of Plato. So we've, we know a lot of the things that Aristotle knows. So when I crack open page one of Aristotle, I'm on at least some of the same footing that man was on. And because he quotes from the plays, I was just reading the metaphysics and he quotes from Xenophon, I think in the metaphysics and I've read that. Oh, okay. I know what that is. You know, it, and so it gives me a context and it gives, it lets me know about what his forebearers had, had taught him and where he was coming from. And when you do that, read, you know, one topic through the scope of history, you don't really get all of that. We were just talking about politics. So you read Aristotle's politics. He talks a little bit about Thucydides in there. You read Thucydides and he's got Alcibiades in there, like this crazy traitor, like mercenary, uh, playboy, <laughs> Like crazy character. But then we met him earlier when we read the symposium by Plato. He's in there. And you can see that he was a, a Socrates and he had some sort of a very close relationship. A Greek relationship, you might say. Mm-hmm. And and, uh, and you can and you could see in the symposium that, uh, that Socrates had taken great interest in him and had great hopes in creating a philosopher king of that guy. Mm-hmm. And he did not. But uh, you wouldn't have read if you were reading about politics in like I um, I don't know a, a subject-based curriculum. You probably wouldn't have read the symposium. You probably wouldn't have read it, and you wouldn't have known that Socrates had. It seems as though Socrates had identified him as a an up-and-comer, a smart, clever young man with resources, and had put energy into mentoring him in hopes of coming up with this philosopher King. And I think he also did the same thing with Glaucon probably in, in, uh, in the Republic. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, So when you read it in order though, you know, you know more of the backstory. So when you get to Thucydides, like, Oh, it's that Alcibiades, I remember. Yeah. It it makes a big difference. And it's slower. It's slower to do it that way, but it's more complete. And I, I think it's the right way to do it.
1: Okay, well, what you're doing with Great Books Online really is at this this intersection of classical thought and and contemporary culture. We're talking about and moving this this kind of discussion into the online. Um, like you said before, particularly for people who don't have three or four or five people around who want to read all these books. Right. Um, so I'm I'm really interested in that. You, you talked about you you approach it chronologically. Tell me a little bit more about the format and how that moved from kind of your in-person group. I think you've mentioned seminar a seminar
0: style. Yeah. Uh, Well, my in-person group is, it's an in-person group. We meet on the third Thursday here around my dining room table over there and we eat some cheese and some crackers and, you know, talk about whatever it was we read that month and online great books is similar. No cheese and crackers. It's, it's turnkey. You sign up, we send the book to your house. It's a hard copy because I think electronic copies suck. (laughs) Uh, there's something about there's something about holding the paper book it gives you it gives you more ways to interact with it it's not just visual you actually touch it if they're old books you can smell them I think the more ways the more senses that the thing engages the better the reading comprehension is I, I really believe that and it gives you an opportunity to write in the book keeping notes on a Kindle is not the same as writing in the margins on a book so we send them all a paper copy. And we also do that because we want everybody in the seminar to have the exact same edition. So when when they say, well, you know, that thing on page 83, I just, I don't understand that. Everybody's literally on the same page. They turn to page 83 and there it is. It cuts down a lot of confusion. And we send them reading goals via text message and our little phone app. And our reading goals are based on them reading 30 minutes a day, six days a week. So uh, three hours a week is going to get them Everything they need for the average reader to be ready for their seminar, and they have at least one seminar a month. And for two hours, one of our seminar hosts, who's 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 good at this stuff, and trained up by us and has read these books, leads them in a Socratic seminar over the Iliad, the Odyssey, Plato's Republic, whatever it is in front of them. And they have one at least one of a month. We we host about probably. I haven't looked lately, 65, 70 seminars a month and our online great books members can go to any of those or as many of them as they want. So we have some people that go to two or three a week and we have some that just go to their seminar once a month. But, uh, the average reader can get through with that stuff with uh, three hours of reading a week seems to be a reasonable pace. And, uh, sometimes I get it wrong. (laughs) I had to, I, I, I had them go through, uh, Aristotle's, uh, ethics in one month. And uh, (laughs) I had a mutiny. They're like, no, that ain't going to happen. That needs to be a two-monther. And so we (laughs) cut that one in two. And uh, they did a lot better with that. Yeah. So I thought that the main reason that people would need to do this with a service like us would be for the accountability and I think that's true. So we do a lot to help them stay accountable. They do these reading check-ins. We send them their goals. We send them these reading guides every week. Hey, you're going to be reading this this week. Think about the conversation that uh, Socrates has and the Agora with so-and-so blah, 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 that kind of thing. But we found that once they go to a couple of seminars, it's not about the accountability. It's about the fact that we have those, good, those great seminars that keep coming back. You can read a book by yourself and that's good. And you ought to, But again, back to that sensory thing, I think that when you go to a seminar and you discuss the book, that's when you actually take action on the book and you start to incorporate the ideas in the book into who you are. That might be positive or negative. Like you might incorporate that idea as you might react to that idea in a negative way or it might be positive. You might agree or you might disagree. But either way, speaking convincingly or beautifully to the people in the seminar about those ideas and taking action on them, Improves the reading comprehension enormously and and it makes us know why we believe the things we believe in an even more firm way than just reading as a solitary as a solitary endeavor. The seminars where the close reading really happens that's where the reading comprehension really goes way way up you You mentioned
1: earlier uh the trivium uh, for a lot of our listeners they'll be they'll be familiar with that idea from uh, the several liberal arts. But there are different applications and interpretations of that in education. Um, how do you see the use of uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric within your seminars?
0: Well, the seminars really are sort of the rhetorical piece of this thing. We The first book that we read in, in Online Great Books is Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. And Adler advocates for two readings. You read everything twice. You do an inspectional reading where you, you look through the table of contents, you look through the bullet points, you, you read a little bit here and there, and you, you, you kind of get a feeling for what the darn thing is about. Hmm. You, can't, you can't get a feel for what the book is about and then understand the whole book in the same reading. You, you can't do that. So you go through and you take the beats and, and that's the grammar of the thing. Right. You're you're getting the lay of the land, you're identifying jargon words and, and uh terms of art that are special to that book a little and you look up a few of these words. Well, what is th- Aristotle's metaphysics? What the heck's metaphysics? You look it up in the dictionary before you even get started. Right? We're starting to get acquainted with the metaphysics, or I'm sorry, the grammar of the subject. And then when you read the book, you start coming to what Adler calls coming to terms with the author. You identify the arguments and terms that the author uses to make their case. You identify those and you start to assemble those in your mind so that you can actually restate the author's arguments. And that's, that's the logic of the book we're reading of the ideas or the, in the essay or whatever is being presented to us. And then when we go and can describe those things to other people, or we can argue our point about that book convincingly or beautifully, that's when we actually practice the rhetoric. So we, um, I, I think that that's the way you learn anything. That's the way you learn anything. You have to learn the basics. You have to learn the, very, the basics. Uh, and then later on, you learn organizing principles. You start to put it together in your mind. And then, boom, you actually, hopefully, you teach somebody else. I mean, I think that's the best way, you know, when one teaches, two learns. That's the best way to, to solidify that subject matter in your mind. And uh, we do a little bit of that teaching, as it were, in the, in the uh, seminar, but to the classical liberal arts point, we are making more and more strides towards doing that in the plain vanilla, tried and true way. We have, uh, we have a group that is learning Latin. We have a group that is learning Greek inside our, our program. Okay. Uh, we, have, we have a group that is working through Euclid's Elements book one right now. So they go through book one. It goes through, up, up through proposition 43, I think. They proved pyth- the Pythagorean theorem to themselves. That's logic. We actually have a logic course that's coming out, introduction to logic that's coming out soon. And then we have what we call colloquium. They can write, they can produce any original work. It could be a painting, it could be an audio recording, it could be a YouTube video, it could be an essay uh, regarding the materials that we go over in this, in this program. And then we'll schedule a, a colloquium where the author or the creator presents the material and then has to... I'm going to say, defend it. That's not the case. They field questions and uh, help everybody come to terms with and understand the work that they have created. And I mean, that's, that's hardcore rhetoric. You stand up in front of somebody and you show them the contents of of your, of your mind, the product of your mind, and then have to defend that in front of them. And we, uh, so we, we are doing a more classical liberal arts uh, track inside the program as well. None of that. Well, we charge a little bit of money for the uh, Euclid thing because we send them the book. Uh, but everything else is just you just get it as part of the program. Today at one p.m. we had a guy present a paper on uh, the Odyssey. His name was John De Souza, and he sent set that thing in at one o'clock and had a colloquium. And he ran a two-hour session and discussion of the work that he created. That's, That's scary as hell. You know that? Yeah. You're like write something and have a whole bunch of people come and ask you questions about it. And these are people that have already read Aristotle and Thucydides and all this. It's scary, but these guys are doing it. Yeah. So we've got this sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I'll say it this way, kind of watered down. <laughs> or we have this sort of more casual approach to this Trivium thing where we try to show people how to read with that Trivium approach. And then we have the more rigid, uh, classic Trivium thing going inside the program. And it, it seems to be working very well. I wanted to touch back just a little bit
1: on on the the choice of works. I know I've heard you talk before about you. Uh, you don't cover the Bible itself because of the difficulty of handling that in an online setting, but you do cover many of the other Christian thinkers through, through the through the ages. And and you mentioned that people who have a problem with what's included in the list typically is not. It's coming from a more progressive uh, look at things, but on the other end of the spectrum, um, with Adler's work, there's a there's a pretty big gap between Augustine and and Aquinas about 800 years there. Um, And some attribute that to that, to kind of a post-enlightenment bias against that medieval period. Some pretty famous works in there, things like Beowulf. Do you, do you cover pieces from that time period? Do you have some thoughts about that,
0: that gap that he had in there, what that might've been about? Yeah. You you just mentioned Beowulf. So there are, there are sort of two kinds of things that happen in that spot between Augustine and and Aquinas, maybe there's Boethius, there's John Duns Scotus, and there's, you know, these sort of church fathers, there's that stuff, the scholastics mostly. And then there's Beowulf, which is a completely different category. So I'll talk about Beowulf first. Beowulf doesn't belong. I think it hundred percent categorically doesn't belong. It's a, I think it's a wonderful treasure, but we didn't know we did. It was lost until the early 1800s. So it's not part of the conversation. Shakespeare didn't know about it. Shakespeare I mean no, nobody referenced it it was gone it doesn't mean it's not important but it's not part of the conversation and that's one of the criteria that we use okay. now I will tell you that we have a lot of people who in our program who say hey you know we want to read uh, we want to read these other plays by uh, Euripides because we didn't read all of Euripides plays we set up a seminar and they run one themselves I think I believe we just uh, we've got a group running through uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings well, that ain't in there. Um, and we, we'll, we'll have a Beowulf group as well. But it won't be part of our standard, our standard set of offerings. I think it's a really important book, but I think it's objectively true that it's not part of this great conversation of ideas. Okay. Um, now, but these other cats, these early scholastics, these church fathers, Boethius, whatever, that's a different thing. One, we can't read it all. Can't read it all, and in my opinion, and I'm I'm no scholar in this area, and I haven't read all the Boethius, and you know we were just talking about some. I was just talking to one of the guys that leads seminars uh, with us, uh, Jim furr and he said, you know, we might need to add in consolation of philosophy. Boethius is still, and I said, well, okay, we've got another a little while before we need to get that uh, evaluated, but maybe. But Aquinas has this habit of recapping everyone's arguments. <laughs> Uh, He he, have you heard of Daniel Dennett? Daniel Dennett talks about steel manning. You know what a straw man is, you know, the straw man fallacy. Well, Daniel Dennett talks about steel manning, where you state the opposition's case in such a good way that if you told the opposition, if you made the case their own case to them, they'd say, you know what, I wish I would said it that way myself. Aquinas does that over and over and over again. And he covers so many of these other authors. And the ideas and the arguments that they made, he covers them all so well that we frankly we really, we lean on Thomas a whole lot as a shorthand to those earlier guys. Okay um, I'm reading metaphysics, Aristotle's metaphysics right now, and uh, in book th- book two book two, he recaps Plato's forms way better than Plato did. Like the first, oh, this is my second reading of uh, metaphysics. The first time I read it, I was like, "Oh no!" Well, now I get it. Plato didn't make me <laughs> understand it, but Aristotle did, and uh, uh, Thomas is much the same way. Um, so, so you know, we can't read everything, and that is has been our compromise thus far.
1: Okay, and you mentioned that you, you said you you know there's some things that go on within the community that are outside the main uh, reading oh, yeah. list. How and you mentioned Tolkien specifically. That's obviously much more recent. Um, how far forward do you, does your, does your kind of main list
0: come? Oh, uh, we'll read some Einstein. Okay. Yeah. We'll read some, uh, we'll read some, uh, Newton. Well, gosh, you got to read You got to read Einstein (laughs) then. But you know, uh, we get, you know, we don't have anybody reading anything in the 20th century right now. And uh, we have people that say, well, what about this? And what about that? Now, you know, it's kind of early. Yeah. You know, it's kind of early, but I think it's pretty clear that something like Einstein, I think it's pretty clear that somebody, something like Freud is is going to make the cut. Uh, Freud introduced something new, whether it's right or wrong. He introduced, introduced something re- new that changed the way people thought about people and the way people thought about consciousness and behavior and that he needs to be, he needs to be part of the talk, the, the great conversation. So he's in there. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Before I let you go, I want to get back to some of you, uh, your experience here. So yeah. First off, what's some of your favorites so far? You've been at this, how many years now since you kind of got the home group going? Gosh, five or six years. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of your favorite works at this point?
0: Well, I, I just, I just love, I just love Aristotle. I can't say that he's any fun. <laughs> um, I can't, I don't, I can't say it's any fun, but it has such explanatory power and it's so clarifying that to me, it's just a, it's just a miraculous. And the, he talks about everything that's important and he talks about it in almost the definitive last answer way for me, at least over and over and over again. The guy's unbelievable. And I just, I just, um, I mean, it's just not only are the books interesting and do, and not only do I think that uh, his metaphysics and his ethics is awesome (laughs) and, and subscribe to it. I'm very Aristotelian in that way. The thing's awe inspiring because it's the, all the product of one mind. You know, there's just thousands and thousands of pages of penetrating original thought, and it's just the product of one guy. He has to be the biggest genius that ever lived. He has to be. Somebody fight me. <laughs> uh, he has to be. It, this stuff is astonishing. I love Plato. It's not only, he brings up all of the big questions, doesn't satisfy anyone on any of the points. That's kind of that's his thing right? He's there to ask the big questions and poke you and then uh, watch you ride them pain. Uh, and so that's his thing, but it's also great literature. There's so much fun. Uh, they're so well done. It's just a delight to read Plato and I love the essays of Montaigne. Montaigne is a crazy person. It's the original blog. You know anything about Montaigne? Not much. It, no, no. So he was like, a. Uh, I'll probably get some of this wrong. Uh, he was a, is uh, a Frenchman in the 1500s, but he's like East, East, East French. Like he borders on Sp- Spanish. You know, the borders are not, they're a little hazy at that time, maybe. And he had some civil service job and, and, and was fairly successful. And I think he got a little bit of an inheritance and he just quit. He would just get up in the morning and just close himself up in this tower and write. And he would just write about whatever it was that he interested him, whatever it was for the day. And um, it's the ultimate bathroom reading. Like some of these essays are like one page. Some of them are seven or eight pages. Uh, He writes about cannibalism. Here you go. Of sadness. Uh, Of feelings that extend themselves beyond our perceptions. On idleness, friendship, cannibals, on the younger Cato, of fear, Uh, of liars, Uh, uh, on the education of children. Just whatever he was interested in that day. And he wrote 2,000 pages of it. And he's funny and insightful. Just it's a delight. Yeah. He's sitting here on my desk and he's always on my desk. The guy's the best. All right. He's the best. Yeah.
1: One for me to mark down to, to, to check out.
0: Yeah. That oh. one's, that one's the bathroom book. I'm telling you, man, you can pick up and read three pages of Montaigne and be better off. You read three pages of Aristotle. You're dumber than you were. <laughs> like, like it takes a hundred pages of Aristotle to get anywhere. Montaigne ain't like that. Okay. Well on that note, what's been the, the toughest
1: one for you to tackle so far?
0: Maybe the Aristotle. No, wait a minute! Um, oh my gosh, this will get me in trouble with your listeners, probably. <laughs> Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion just couldn't hack it; just incoherent, incoherent. Couldn't hack it, and then and then we we, we also read um, the correspondence between uh, Luther uh, and uh, Erasmus on free will. And uh, bo- both the, the, the works by Calvin and that open correspondence on free will between those t- the Erasmus and, L- and Luther just wore me out. <laughs> just wore me out. L- L- Luther's ill will just boils up out of the page. He's just glow-in-the-dark angry. And it was exhausting to just absorb that energy out <laughs> of that person as I read it. And then I just don't buy Calvin. I just don't buy his bedrock axioms about free will. I, I just don't buy it. And so, you know, there's some of these people that if you, you know, if there's two or three bedrock axioms that you just don't come, you can't get together on, the rest of the book is just, it's not inaccessible, but it's pointless at that. You know, it's pointless if you don't believe the way Calvin does about free will. Then you can't go down every road with him. And I and I'll try to be a a good faith reader. He say, I'm going to set aside my belief here, and I'm going to follow him as much as I can to see where he's going. Well, that's a giant book. <laughs> that's, it's hard to do that for 1,000 pages, and especially when we were as far apart as, as he and I were. So that was really, really, really tough. In fact, I did not finish Calvin's Institutes, not even the abridgment. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to pick up an abridgment. I'm going to get the greatest hits here, 365 pages or whatever the heck it was. Couldn't do it. Oh, couldn't do it. I'd rather beat my thumb with a hammer. You a Calvinist?
1: I, I'm not. Uh, we, have a, we have a broad audience, but... Uh,
0: I, I do a podcast called Barbell Logic. I'm a strength coach too. It's a weird thing. And my partner on there is hardcore Calvinist. Hardcore Calvinist. Many of them just tangle all the time.
1: <laughs> that's good. That's, that's That's the engaging with the ideas, right? That's the uh, the purpose of the... Not reading it in isolation, but reading it in, in seminar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of these days he'll know just how wrong he was. It's, pre, <laughs> it's, pre, it's predestined in, in eternity past that he'll know one day he was wrong. Maybe not. <laughs> so, so with the, with the tougher reads,
1: um, I know, I think when you were talking with Brett, you talked about how um, even just the, the sheer size of something like city of God was, was, <sighs> was overwhelming. Um, yeah, even if you love Augustine, right. Or or even if you love Calvin, the, the size of, uh, of those works. What, what's, you know, when you get some space from them, what do you, what do you, how do you feel like when you get some space from those works and just the experience of going through that, that reading that tougher work um, that does for you?
0: Well, I'm, I'm a barbell coach too. <laughs> and, um, and I think there's, the, so, you know, you do heavy squats and you pull heavy deadlifts and you get stronger and that's good, but there's something more that happens too. You learn something about yourself in doing that thing that you didn't think you could do before. Right there's a, there's, a, there's a physical and mental and psychological toughness that comes from uh, working up to that first 500-pound deadlift that is beneficial beyond the ability to pick up 500 pounds. And the same thing applies to some of those heavy-duty books. I, I've read City of God uh, a couple times. No, I've read it, I've read it through one time. Uh, I probably have 2% of that book in my mind. But I went through the darn thing. I kind of know the lay of the land. I know Augustine's style at this point, and I'm ready now to read it again and get a lot more from the book. Uh, but but there's something to be, there's something that makes us mentally tougher in actually doing it. Hmm. But I'll tell you, uh, doing that did not prepare me for Calvin. But uh, there's something meditative about it. You know, there's this mindfulness meditation, you know, where you you focus on, a meditation support, right? It could be an icon. Some people will stare at a candle, maybe. Um, um, uh, sometimes they'll focus on their breath, right? And you try to hold your focus on this thing, whatever that is. And then when your mind goes away, you non-judgmentally, you don't punish yourself for it, but you just bring your, back, your mind back to that object of focus. You get to do that a whole lot when you read City of God. So there's this meditative mindfulness exercise that you go through when you're reading something that's very long and very difficult like that that i think i I think it checks all the boxes that mindfulness meditation that somebody like sam harris talks about all the time in with the addition with the addition of exercising your rationality like it's not transcendental like you might sit on the cushion and go um you know and and try to practice some sort of mindfulness and some sort of self-awareness. But often there's a goal of like being mystical or transcendental in that. But here it's about bringing your focused, relaxed focus. Actually, it's really hard to do. Rationality on the ideas of some other person's consciousness. It's really tough. But if you can do that for the 1200 pages of City of God, you come out the other end, as a much more authentic, much more aware person, you're a better husband. You listen better. You can hear. You know, uh, uh, it just it just makes it easier for you to engage your mind with the mind of another person. So, I mean, it's a, it's a it's, that's an enormous benefit outside of any information that you might have actually gotten from the book. We just added something at online great books after we we send the Iliad out to people. And after they've had it for seven days, we have what we call a close reading session. So they go dial in, it's not a seminar, but we use Zoom and they dial in and one of our seminar hosts does a guided reading. He reads it out loud and then shares his inner monologue with them so they know how he reads. And it's not the definitive answer, right? But those close reading sessions, those sort of close reading tutorials that we've been doing, we've been doing them now for just about three or four months seem to have been a great help to our readers in helping them keep their attention on the book, understand, understand what they should be thinking about, or, or ways of how they might be thinking about the text. We, want to, we never want to steer anybody into a certain type of reading or a certain understanding of a text. But we do, we do want to model how they should be questioning the text as they read, how should they should be questioning their understanding as they go along. Like as you read, you need to be matching your understanding against what you're reading. So that when you get, so you know you're when you're lost as early as you can know. (laughs) You know, there's nothing worse than like going three pages, like, oh, I don't know what I've said for the last what he's been saying for the last five pages. You know, we want to know that the instant we go off the track, we want to know when that is. You're constantly taking your temperature and uh, and paying attention to the to book at the same time. It's really interesting, but uh, we've been doing those course classes for people. That seems to be a great help, and that's a skill they can apply at work, marriage, whatever. It's a it's a it's a universal skill.
1: And so, after a couple of years, where do you see people tending to get stuck or derailed? And, and what's some advice maybe you have for that?
0: Uh, if they do it for a couple of years, they don't stop. <laughs> they have drank the Kool Aid that they're in. Um, if you're doing this, whether you're doing it with us, you're doing it with a group, you're doing it alone, you got to be kind to yourself. Um, if you get behind, um, don't get anxious about it. Don't get mad. Don't beat yourself up. Just get back on your pace. Don't even try to keep up. You know, if you're on a 10 page a day pace, don't try to read 30 pages tomorrow to get caught back up. Just get back on your 10 page a day pace. Uh, We don't, we don't want to introduce anxiety into this because a lot of the books are anxiety inducing anyway. They really are. (laughs) They really are. One of the one of the Adler says one of the reasons these books are great books is because they're endlessly discussable and endlessly studyable. So we're always over our heads in these books, and that can be anxiety-inducing. So you know, be kind to yourself. Uh, understand that when you read some of these books the first time, you may not get hardly any of it at all. You may not understand at all what you've read. Um, there are people that spend sixty-year careers on one of these books. Um, and so, for you to read it once and then be irritated or think you're dumb because you didn't get much of it uh, just ain't right because they didn't either. There are people that, there are people that spent, you know, Tolkien spent years and years on Beowulf, in your example there. Years, years and years and years. It's not very long, you know. So, uh, these things are endlessly probable. And it's hard to get much on that first reading. So be, be kind to yourself. Be patient with yourself in terms of, the, of uh, you know, getting behind and creating the habit. And be patient in, with yourself in terms of depth of understanding. Mortimer Adler always says, we don't read for perfection. We read to move from a state of less understanding to a state of more understanding. And as long as, every time, as, long as you come to more understanding, you're winning. That's good enough. That's good enough. You know, we all went to school. Well, not all of us. Some lucky folks didn't, but most of us went to school and we got graded, you know? And so there's a little carrot and stick there that has taught us that there's a perfection in our studies that we should be shooting for. And that's actually not true. That's actually not true. And so uh, be patient with yourself and just just make sure you're moving to a state of more understanding as long as you are, you're doing well for yourself. And remember, you could have been watching Game of Thrones. So this is a whole lot better than that.
1: Well, I don't think we can end it much better than that. Uh, Scott, thank you for joining us today. Where can people go to learn a little bit more about great books online?
0: Uh, well, go to online greatbooks.com. and we open enrollment about every six or eight weeks and uh, join us. We'd love to have you there. And if we, don't have enrollment open right now, you can click the little join now button in the top right corner and, and join our waiting list. And then uh, when we open enrollment, we'll send you a coupon code and you can get in for 25% off for three months. And you can listen to us at onlinegreatbooks.com, where my partner, Carl shoot. And I talk about books, of course on every Thursday and, uh, and uh, hash through, we really don't, we don't hash through most of the books that we read. Uh, Cause we don't want people to listen to us and say that's the answer so we don't want people in our pro- program to hear carl and i talk about Crito, for example and and uh we don't want to poison the well we don't want to poison we don't want to lead them to certain conclusions before they read them so we read um canon adjacent stuff so we just read um uh, like a, a Gawain in the green Knight, a little poem you know, contemporary with the canterbury tales that was lost for mm-hmm. many many years um we've read um I think we read Lord of the Rings and discussed it in there. We've read uh, uh, various essays. Uh, we read a little bit of Aristotle. Uh, so yeah, we talk about we talk about interesting writings. We kind of model. We try to model how people might be questioning of the text and uh, and how they might discuss the books among themselves with that show. I think it's fun.
1: Okay. Well, thank you again. We'll uh, include one of those coupon codes for the next enrollment in our show notes, and uh, for our listeners take advantage of that if it's something they're interested in. Thanks again for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me
0: on. It's great fun. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Undaria algae body oil. Created by infusing Undaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing.